There are four ways of making a decision. There's consciously mediated action selection, then there's deliberative, then there's the automatized and the alarm. Welcome to MC Squared, a podcast that brings minds together to cultivate incredible ideas. This podcast's primary focus is dedicated to showing off highlights and discussing possible applications of some of the most innovative work that academics have spent tireless hours pioneering. Join us as we discuss the newest advances in technology so you can start unpackaging the marvels of the scientific world. I am your host, Jonathan Kramer, and today I'm joined by my studio producer, Constantine Milam. On today's episode, we will dip our toes into the construct of the human mind. The fundamental question we ask ourselves is, how do human, animal, and artificial minds work? To help us discover how this autonomous system works, we have invited a guest who has spent his life elucidating the intricate routes of unconscious and conscious thought processes. Professor Stan Franklin, a mathematician turned computer scientist, turning cognitive scientist, is a professor at the University of Memphis. Stan is the winner of the Eminent Faculty Award, the founder of the Institute for Intelligent Systems, and the author of Artificial Minds, published by MIT and translated into many different languages. Most recently, he has been working towards perfecting his analysis of animal cognition with his Learning Intelligent Decision Agent Model, or LIDA for short. You can find him on the editorial board of a half dozen international journals or speaking at a wide selection of scientific conferences. Without further ado, I would like to warmly welcome Stan Franklin to MC Squared. So thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get too much into the specifics of your work, I really just wanted to ask this to preface our conversation, and that is, what really got you interested in starting to study the mind, studying these control or cognitive systems? What to a conference on computing and education and got hooked on computing, which led me to artificial intelligence and attended a few conferences on artificial intelligence and got sufficiently interested, gave a series of lectures to the Institute for Intelligent Systems that we'd started back then and those lectures led to artificial minds. I spent four years writing that book. And at the end of the book, I didn't know how to finish it. And what I really wanted to do was to put together all of the various mechanisms of mind that we've talked about in there into a single system and say we'd all work together. But I didn't know how to do it. So I published the book as it was and then began to work on what later became Ida and then Lida. That's what led me to it. The, the whole book led me to the question of, of how do minds work. And it was in the book that we defined as a control structure for an artificial agent. Just to clarify, I wanted to describe what an autonomous agent system really was. Um, and get a perspective from your point of view. Well, an autonomous agent is, and this is the technical definition, we can go into each piece of it, a, it's a system that's embedded in an environment, part of that environment. It acts on the environment. It acts on it over time, not just once. It's not like 
print the monthly checks. You know, it acts on it in pursuit of its own agenda. Nobody's telling it what to do at any time. And finally, it's structurally coupled to its environment. And what that means is that the action that the agent takes can affect the environment in such a way as to change what the agent is sensing. It really is structurally coupled to the environment. What it does makes a difference. So the way I kind of think of it is almost every life system that we really know of is an autonomous agent in that sense. It is directly working on a mechanism controlled in the environment and in the self. To me, clearly every animal is such a thing. Probably, and more things are, are autonomous agents than we think of. Maybe some plants are actually fit the definition. As you, and that would give us, if not all the life systems, surely most of them. You can probably make a good argument that the University of Memphis that I work for is an autonomous agent. It may fill that bill. The things that we've really looked at as being autonomous agents and that we, we want to find out how minds work about, or as you point out, the humans, the animals, and the artificial minds that we're seeing more and more of these days. Let's try to dive into how we actually, we know the autonomous agents, they exist because we can see them reacting in the environment. How do we actually piece out the components? And I guess that kind of jumps into LIDA because LIDA is the system of the pieces. It is essentially a puzzle piece that makes up what the mind is. So what kind of tests would you be able to do to even monitor something's autonomous agent or whether or not it has a mind? Well, every autonomous agent makes decisions answering its continual question, what do I do next? So there's some control structure that makes those decisions. And, and that control structure is a mind. So uh, by definition, every autonomous system will have a mind, which is very different from the way that the philosophers use the term. Okay, gotcha. Just a control structure, uh, a system reforming decisions, and based on the environment. Okay, so I wanted to grab a few reinforcements here. So a very popular book that aims to elucidate the structure of the mind is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And so they present the mind in two pieces, System 1 and System 2, where System 1 is the more unconscious behavioral mechanisms and System 2 is the deliberate mechanisms. I wanted to see if we could plug that structure into the LIDA model, the model that you've developed to help understand the mind. Well, uh, if you want to start with Kahneman and Tversky's thing, their system one, if you want to look at that from the point of view of our LIDAR model, consciously mediated action selection, where eight is attend to what's happening at the, at the moment and is making a decision about what to do next and makes that decision with the decision-making apparatus being totally unconscious, but using the consciousness, the determined information about what the environment is doing now 
including its inner environment, what its motivations are. So this is consciously mediated action selection. And that's essentially Kahneman's system one. I mean, his system one is a little more than that, but that, that's the best way to plug it into our ladder model. System two is where the decision-making apparatus is partially conscious, where I'm thinking about what am I going to do next consciously. I'm sitting in a restaurant, I'm looking at a menu, and I'm thinking about what am I going to eat? Am I going to pick this one? Am I going to pick that one or the other? And probably thinking about the advantages of one of the, oh, that one's got salt in it, I'm not supposed to eat it. But this kind of thing, which is partially conscious. So this deliberative thing is it's much of Kahneman's systems, too. That's these pieces. Okay, that's really fascinating. So the cool thing I found about the LIDA model is that we've been able to expand the System 1 and System 2 structures. So using a few terms from the LIDA model, in System 1 you might see alarms and automatized action selection. And then in System 2 you might see consciously mediated action selection and volition decision making. So we touched a little bit on the consciously mediated activities, like looking at a menu, selecting which ingredients that you would like or would not like, but tell me a little bit more about the unconscious processes, like the automatized action selection. Uh -huh. Automatized action selection. If I start walking down the hall and look ahead of me, and I can see that the hall is clear, there's nothing in the way, then I can think about something else and devote all of my consciousness to something else for the next few steps. And I don't have to think about it at all. The decision, one action call next action. One step calls the next step automatically. It's automatized. We don't do much of that. Almost all of what we do is consciously mediated. All of the speaking that I'm doing now is consciously mediated. Almost everything I do is consciously mediated. But sometimes we have these automatized actions. Mostly it's um, movement, like riding a bike. Much of it is automatized. So then I like the example of speaking because let's take the counterpart, which is listening. Now, would that be a conscious activity? There we're talking about, in terms of the autonomous agent, what we're talking about there is, is sensing the environment. And listening is just sensing the environment. For us, it's mostly passive. For many animals, it's not. They turn their ears in order to, in a different direction. But we've left out the fourth type, namely the alarm. The good example of an alarm is the situation if I'm driving an automobile and someone cuts in front of me, then what I'm aware of is that by the time I've realized that someone has cut in front of me, I've already begun to step on the brake and turn the wheel. So in an alarm, it's possible to set action selection, the thing that you do without the the conscious input, the sensory data comes in, 
that someone's cutting in front of me, but the response is taken without consciousness. Well, I shouldn't say without consciousness because invariably I am conscious of it, but the consciousness is in, in parallel and simultaneous selection of actions. And actions are selected without it. And these are very rare situations. They're things that sometimes things that happen in athletics and this sort of thing. It happens very rarely, but it can happen without consciousness. So now I think we've kind of got the grounds of how we get from one piece of information to the next. And what I mean as in like we take a sensory and then we turn it into perception, which is then fired into, into motor action, right? So that's usually through the conscious or the unconscious action. So I think we should try to walk through this Leiden model because it's really, really neat. I think it's really interesting to see the human mind splayed out visually. It's, it's such an abstract idea that can become very tangible. I think it's so cool. For those listening, at this point, you might be asking yourself, what in the world is this LIDA model that we keep speaking of? Well, to describe it to the best of my abilities, the LIDA model is a cognitive diagram to depict the cyclic process that occurs within our mind. To describe this model properly, we'll have to quite literally take a trip through our own minds. But one thing I want you to keep in mind while we're going through this model is that these processes that we're speaking about, they don't occur individually. They occur simultaneously. Process in computational science called parallel computing. And so, let's start from ground one, internal, external environment. That's where the data is, I guess. And I think I read in, in your book, this is one of the most interesting things, is nothing around us is actually data until we perceive it and then it becomes information because everything around us is just useless until we actually make the decision to make it data. I explain that because I think that's kind of a hard area to understand. Well, data is, from our point of view, is what comes in through the senses. We, we get the data through the senses and then we begin to understand the data. And this is perception. After we perceive it, we now have information about it. The, the perceived data is information. The understood data is information. And then we can also generalize that information. This generalized information is what we call knowledge. So you've got data, you've got information, where you add meaning to the you get meaning from the data, and then you've got knowledge, which is generalizations from the information that you've taken in. And those are the three. We grab that data, and this is the part that gets a little confusing. We put this into some kind of global workspace slash uh, workspace. Now, how do we get from the data interpretation into these workspaces in, in the LIDA model? The LIDAR model is cyclic, in a sense. It works on what we call a cognitive cycle. And the, the cognitive cycle has three phases to it. The first phase is a phase in which we understand the data and perceive it. And it creates a, a model of what's going on 
around me at the moment in my environment, internal and external. And it updates this model as we go along. And this is the first phase. And there's lots going on around me. There's looking at you. I see you nodding your head. That's happening. But I can also background noises and I can feel the chair that I'm sitting on, but I'm not paying attention to those. You know, and then who knows? Other things may be happening. Uh, in general, there's more going on than we can pay attention to at once. So we have to filter this step, filter this information even. For the time we get there, maybe even knowledge, we have to filter it and decide what's the most salient thing. And salience is broad. I mean, it can be how important is something, how urgent is it? It can be urgent. It can have a deadline without being all that important, for example. How expected is it? Is it something that I expect or something that's surprising? Something that's very surprising is more salient than something that is, that's, that's expected. How loud is a sound? How bright is a vision, an explosive vision? So we filter the information and the knowledge that's coming in at any time into a little, pick out a little most salient piece and decide and send it out as our conscious contents. And the this filtering and sending it out as a conscious content is the second phase, that's the attention phase. The third phase is the phase in which we select an action by one of these four ways that we've talked about, but at least three of them. And we select an action and perform that action. And we also learn in the third phase. We learn in all of our long-term memories. We learn new things and we learn partial things. So this is the third phase in the cognitive cycle is the action selection and modulate learning phase. So one thing that, that, that's important here is that, as you pointed out earlier, lots of things are happening in, in parallel here. The action selection and the learning, all of this happens in parallel. The learning happens at the same time that the action selections, learning in one memory is happening at the same time as the learning in a, a different memory is going on. These phases are in one cycle can overlap with another cycle. While one cycle is in a perceptual phase, the cycle behind it, or the cycle ahead of it, I guess, is already in the intention phase, and the cycle ahead of it is already in the action selection phase. So there's a cascade of cycles going on. How do you put the start of one cycle and find the end? If it's a cascading effect, how can I measure how long one cycle is? Because at some point I feel like they're all blending together, making one internal conscious dialogue with yourself. That's exactly what we consciously experience, isn't it? Continual dialogue 
or if you're a meditator, you may experience this continual flow of consciousness without any dialogue. You, you don't have to have the words. It doesn't have to be a verbal thing at all. It can be pure, purely sensorily with everything in the present, but you've got to work to get it to that. I, I feel like I try to wrap my head, though, because I was looking around in your reports and you've been able to extrapolate that one cycle is like 200 milliseconds to 500 milliseconds. And how do you answer that question of, when do you begin thinking something from a piece of data, putting it into all these different systems like perception, memory, and then outputting it into storage or whatnot? How do I mark the beginning and the end of that cycle? That depends upon what kind of, what kind of mind you're dealing with. You see, if you, if you seriously ask that question, you, you've got to ask, what's the agent? If the agent is a human, you've got one thing. If the agent is a, an octopus, you've got something else. If the agent is uh, Amazon's Alexis, you've got something else. And you, you do that very differently if this is the case. But the 200 to 500 milliseconds, the something like five to 10 times a second, that's a good estimate of how long a cycle typically takes for a human. And my guess is for mammals, it's pretty much the same. We get that from the neuroscientists. We make an argument that I don't have on the top of my head, but we, we do have a, a, a paper that, that talks about it and justifies how we get that from existing neuroscience data. And, and that's essentially the answer. That's, that's interesting, though, because we can manipulate that cycle. We know that okay, it takes the human brain 200 to 500 milliseconds to process information. And so if we put in a lot of different stimuli all at once, our brain is going to use that filtering process you mentioned and ignore specific things. So let me, let me propose this one test that you guys were talking about. It's the attentional blink. Could you describe the attentional blink? Well, the situation that leads to the attentional blink is one that we typically don't arrive at in uh, our usual running life. This is, comes from a, an experiment done by the psychologist and later by the neuroscientist, most, mostly by the psychologist. It's called an RSVP experiment, repeating sequential visual processing. Here's the thing, you've got a, a subject in the experiment is being shown a continual sequence of what is typically digits. So you'll see a three and then a six and then a, a one and then a nine and then a four and then a zero uh, digits coming up. And ah, the R is not repeating, the R is rapid. Rapid sequential visual processing. Got it. Now, now we've got it right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you're seeing these things one at a time fairly frequently every 100 milliseconds. You've got the sequence of digits, and every once in a while, there's a letter, and the letter is the target, and that's when you press the button. So that's what's being done in the experiment. What they find is that people see the letters very well and very rarely miss one, unless 
two letters come too close together. If they come too close together, you get an attentional blink. And that's the name of it. And the person is, is not conscious of one of the letters. <laughs> and the interesting thing about the blink is that if the two letters are right next to one another, you may see both of them. If they miss by one, you're likely to, to miss the second one. And if, if they're two apart, you're more likely to see the second one. If they're three apart, you're even more likely and so forth. So the probability goes up until the probability is close to one. Okay, gotcha. And sometimes the, the experimentee will just not be able to press it because there's that attentional yeah. blink. Because yeah. they can't process it and they're cyclic, uh, bringing the contents of reality into the conscious. They can't do that. Exactly. It's too, it's too quick. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Too quick. But let, let me point out one other thing, namely that uh, looking at the attentional blink was the one thing that may have come from direct empirical that made us make a change in the model. It made us make a change in the way that saliency was determined, used to filter out certain things. That was an important piece for us. We had gotten it almost right, but not quite right. And the attentional blink led us to get it quite right. Aha, that's really interesting. Now, transitioning into present-day LIDA model, I kind of want to do end with a couple different things that the LIDA model is still trying to develop. So there were a couple different sections of the LIDA. There's a tutorial online for listeners that are really interested in finding it. It's on uh, your website, correct? Yes. Okay, cool. But there's a, a section called the tutorial, get a PDF, all that good stuff. And if you scroll down to the bottom, there's all the different parts of the human mind that are implemented inside the LIDA model. And there's a bunch of them there. I won't try to list them all out. But there's a few things that I wanted to point out that haven't been fully implemented. There's alarms, emotional appraisal, so making decisions based on emotions, and then embodiment of autonomous agent into robots. So first and foremost, I want to discuss the emotional appraisal integration because I think it'd be wildly interesting to see how we make decisions based on the emotions elicited from a specific stimuli. So I think the general question is, does LIDA have emotions? LIDA's emotions, LIDA's motivations are based on feelings. And feelings include emotions, but they may include other things. Of, uh, I can feel hungry, and that's not an emotion. Or I can be ashamed of something that I've said to you that I shouldn't have said. That is an emotion. And each of those can motivate me. So feelings make uh, LIDA agents. LIDA agents can be built to where they will actually do appraisal to, to deal with emotional things. And autonomous agents must construct their own agendas. They make their own decisions. They have to have their own motivations, as we said before. And these motivations are based on feelings. Now, we humans often seem to use values as motivation. Dig into it, the values themselves are based on feelings. 
of value, thou shalt not kill. That's that's the value. But it's it's based ultimately on feelings, on emotions, and all such values are, according to the LIDAR model, it's the feelings that motivate the action selection, that make the agent choose this action over that action. Weighing the options based on the emotions. Weighing the options based on the emotions, yeah. Sometimes that's done unconsciously, and sometimes it can be done consciously on rare occasions when we deliberate, when I actually think about it consciously. Okay. Last quick question then. How much of the mind do we understand? The short answer to that is relatively little. We have a very good picture of what happens in 200 to 500 milliseconds in a single cycle. We're beginning to have an abstract picture, but when you get it down to the details, you don't even have a good picture of that. But we have a good abstract picture. If you talk about what happens over multiple cycles, we don't even have a good abstract one. But we have it in those time frames, 200 to 500 milliseconds. We got it pretty, pretty well elucidated. Yeah, to some extent. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a really cool foundation for people to progress. Yes. Well, I think that kind of covers everything. I think what I'm really excited to see is the development of the long-term cyclic process. Now that we have like the small little pieces, we can expand it and build those larger cyclic models. But anyway, thank you so much for joining with us today. Enjoyed it. And to my listeners, thanks for tuning in. I would highly recommend you check out Stan Franklin's work, The Lida Cognitive Model. You can find his name on the University of Memphis's webpage. And definitely give the Lida model a check out. Try to navigate through it. It's extremely complex at first glance, but I'm sure if you pull it up while listening to this episode, we can help to explain exactly how it works. And for that matter, how you work.